This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. The only way for the healthcare sector to sustainably contain costs and fulfill its mission is by putting the patient in the delivery of outcomes that matter to patients at the center of the industry's effort. We must align incentives around the continuous improvement of health outcomes in a cost-effective manner, and that's what value-based healthcare is all about. Better health outcomes to patients for the money spent. And contrary to traditional approaches to health system reform that emphasize cost containment, the value-based healthcare revolution shifts the focus to continuous improvement in the outcomes delivered to patients. On our episode this week, we're joined by two of the four authors from the new healthcare book, The Patient Priority. In this book, they write a practical step-to-step guide for clinicians, payers, policymakers, and other industry stakeholders to lead patient-centered, value-based healthcare innovation. The book presents case studies from leading innovators and provides a roadmap for the comprehensive value-based transformation of national health systems. On the show this week is Stefan Larson, MD, PhD, an independent advisor in healthcare and life sciences and a senior advisor to Boston Consulting Group. And joining him is Robert Howard, a former senior editor at Harvard Business Review and MIT Technology Review, who collaborates with BCG on the topics of value-based care and health system transformation. Well, another great episode of The Race to Value to help guide you in your value-based care journey. If you like the content, we'd love to support. Please feel free to uh, leave us a a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't want to miss future episodes, subscribe to our newsletter at racetovalue.org forward slash newsletter. So now let's hear from Dr. Stefan Larson and Robert Howard as they join us this week in the Race to Value. Stefan, Robert, welcome to the Race to Value. It is such an honor to be with you today to discuss your new book, The Patient Priority, Solve Healthcare's Value Crisis by Measuring and Delivering Outcomes that Matter to Patients. It's such a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you very much, Eric. Excited to be here and looking forward to the discussion. Thanks, Eric. It's Robert Howard here, and you can hear Stefan's Swedish accent, so you can recognize him on the podcast. Well, great. And it's and again, it's such a great joy to be with both of you today. And as we start our conversation, I'd like to level set on where we are today with our current healthcare system. We always hear about how 
broken healthcare is, but most people in society do not fully appreciate the lack of value we're extracting from our investments in healthcare. I mean, life expectancy is on the, on the decline, chronic diseases are on the rise, but some people argue that these are temporary indicators or reflect society-wide factors that are beyond the control of the healthcare system. And in your book, The Patient Priority, you build the case for how these population health challenges are symptoms of persistent problems and systemic dysfunctionalities in the healthcare sector itself. And you argue that healthcare is experiencing a triple crisis. The core crisis is a crisis of value that's characterized by unsustainable costs and substantial waste and a growing disconnect between the money spent and the health outcomes delivered to patients. And the value crisis is made worse by this parallel crisis of evidence that's characterized by a disconnect between research and clinical practice and then finally, the value crisis and the evidence crisis contribute to this corrosive crisis of purpose. So can you both walk us through these three main crises of modern healthcare and how they contribute to systemic dysfunctionalities? And how can this basic idea of value-based healthcare serve as a model to align stakeholders around the shared objective to tackle these three crises? Maybe I can start, Stefan, with some thoughts. We start with the, the value crises. Medicine or healthcare at large is becoming more and more complex. If you look at the research published in medical journals, the number of papers coming out is increasing exponentially. So they're doubling every, you know, so many years. Uh, and doctors and nurses and physiotherapists have all that information and all that new knowledge to try to handle in the day-to-day -day, you know, practice of medicine. And that becomes very, very challenging. And in the absence of research that helps guide clinicians to make those decisions, you easily make choices of new therapies and not necessarily the therapies that are the most cost-efficient for a patient. They may not even be better. Uh, they may be marginally better, but a lot more expensive. So th this challenge of having more complexity and not enough guidance to take decisions drives anxiety and leads to the cost explosion that we're seeing. So it's a vicious cycle where these three crises enforce themselves. And unless we are willing to rethink uh, the system is organized and, and what we're focusing on, this will just continue. Uh, and I think this the statement you made Eric, that, you know, some people say this is temporary. Uh, obesity is because short period of time people are eating too much or life expectancy is dropped because of the opioid crisis or because of COVID. That's all true, but the trends have gone on for a very long time. And as we argue in the book, we don't see this changing. We see only that it's going to get worse. The complex complexity increases and unless we're able to handle that better, it, it will get worse. And so that's why the book argues for a fundamental shift in how we lead healthcare, how we define what success is and what good looks like. And we argue that it has to focus on population health or the outcomes that matter to patients. The purpose of the system is to make people healthier. The purpose of the system is to ensure that our workforce can remain you know, in their jobs instead of being sick whether it's through prevention or good treatment, but it has to be done in a cost-efficient way. So we need to stop doing things that don't work very well, and we need to figure out which things don't work very well. 
And that's why outcomes measurement is so central to all three crises. But it is very different than today's system, which focuses very much on specialties and doing activities, whether it's MRI or a piece of surgery, rather than looking at how do I best help this patient to be healthier? Whether I'm a surgeon, an ophthalmologist, or a physiotherapist, how do we work together to deliver the best health for this patient without spending more than we have to? So that was a long answer, Eric, but I think it's a complex question. And I think the book's key message is outcomes that matter to patients is the essence of the future of healthcare. Unless we measure that, make that transparent, unless we standardize what we measure, it will be very hard to get out of the current crisis. So that's the overarching message. I want to come back, this is Robert Howard, to this theme of complexity that Stefan mentioned. And one of the key goals that we set for ourselves when we began to write this book was to look at value-based healthcare from a system perspective. A lot of the discussion about value in healthcare tends to focus on individual organizations, providers, say, and what they can do to improve their performance, to deliver better value to patients. And that's important. And we talk about that in our book. We have a lot of examples of, of, of provider organizations doing that. But we also wanted to step back and take a systems perspective on the problem, because the only way that individual organizations are going to be able to sustain value-based change is if we transform health systems as a whole on the regional level, on the national level, even on the international level. And as we got into this, we more and more began to see healthcare as a complex adaptive system. It's, you know, in, there, there's been a lot of research on complex adaptive systems in recent years. And one of the key insights of that work is that you don't change a complex adaptive system by sort of telling people what to do, telling organizations what to do, putting in guidelines, putting in new rules. Part of the problem is the more you do that, you're kind of making the complexity problem worse by making organizations more and more complicated. So we tried to say, what are the, the few things, we have some colleagues at BCG who talk about simple rules. What are the few simple rules that will help drive change in the system? And one of the key simple rules that we focus on in our book is providing people with the data and information they need to change their behavior. And that's where our whole focus on outcomes measurement comes from. Measuring health outcomes in order to improve outcomes delivered to the patients should be the kind of key metric to drive change in healthcare today. Gentlemen, this is a fantastic conversation already. And and the book is incredible, and I definitely recommend it to our listeners. And in the book, The Patient Priority, you make a strong case for how the first critical step to unlock value in healthcare is to reorient performance measurement around the systematic collection, sharing, and, and analysis of health outcomes data. And when the outcomes that providers deliver become transparent, health systems can know where they stand in comparison to regional, national, and global benchmarks. They can identify innovations in clinical intervention and treatment. They can adopt those practices that are proven 
to deliver superior outcomes. And even though this premise behind leveraging the power of outcomes to unlock value in healthcare, it seems fairly intuitive, it still requires us to think differently about what we consider to be results in healthcare in terms of the delivery of health outcomes that matter to patients. And this paradigm shift in performance measurement also requires us to place a greater value on clinical registries that collect comprehensive data on health outcomes in a population of patients with the same condition. So after reading your book, I got excited to learn how health systems around the world are beginning to measure health outcomes more systematically and comprehensively, and they're using quality registries as an outcomes-based learning system. I'd love for you to provide our listeners with leading examples that we can look to for systematic tracking of health outcomes as a powerful catalyst for performance improvement. And what is the importance of the International Consortium of Health Outcomes Measurement, or ICHOM, in bringing together clinical experts and patients to develop consensus global standards for health outcomes measures that support international networks for learning and continuous improvement? The outcomes measurement well, the outcomes that matter to the patient is it must be the ultimate goal for healthcare. And you can argue that throughout history, of course, clin- clinicians such as myself, I mean, I, I was trained to be a medical doctor, have looked at the results of surgical procedures, you know, done clinical trials to test new drugs, et cetera, et cetera. But because of the organization of healthcare being very specialist oriented, each specialty has looked at the quality of their own work. If I'm a radiologist, I look at the precision by which I'm able to find things through the x-rays or MRIs or whatever investigation I do. If I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I will know the frequency of infections that I have and maybe my hospital has. But at the end of the day, for the patient who uh, has had that hip replacement, whether the radiology did a good picture and whether I had an infection or not, is of course very important. But at the end of the day, two years after surgery, the important thing to me is, can I walk? Do I still have pain? Can I live a normal life, et cetera? And in order for that to be the case, it is the sum of the contribution of all the parties that have been involved. It is the radiologist's qualifications to describe you know, my hip properly. It is the ability of the surgeon to give me the right instructions on how to prepare to do the surgery right. And it is the physiotherapist who helps me afterwards to mobilize me after surgery. So it is a team effort. And you can have a great surgeon, but if you have a really bad physiotherapist or the radiologist does a a misjudgment, the end result is not going to be good. And so by measuring outcomes, we take a holistic view on healthcare. It is the ability of the entire team to deliver excellent results along the care chain, but also their ability to help each other to collectively deliver better better outcomes for the patients. So it is a holistic way of looking at healthcare delivery where we integrate the different professional capabilities in the, the most optimal way. And so I think that that's very important. And the work that started, in fact, the, uh, the ICHOM onset was work that uh, I led together with BCG colleagues when I was still with BCG in Sweden, because Sweden has the largest amount of these, what's called disease registries. They were established by clinicians who wanted to understand 
what drove better outcomes for their patients. And so they got together, for instance, the orthopedic surgeons, and discussed for a year or two, you know, where are the most important outcomes for a patient that needs a hip replacement? What should we measure to know whether we could do a good thing or not? And once they had reached consensus, they got all their colleagues around the whole country to measure this for every patient. Uh, for myocardial infarction, for instance, 95 or 96% of all patients who have myocardial infarction in the country are monitored exactly the same way. 29-day survival, one-year survival, quality of life metrics, et cetera. And that's allowed the clinicians to learn from the variation between hospitals. If some have much better results than others, you know, you ask the question, why is that? What can we learn from them? What do they do differently than we do? How can we pick up from what they do and improve? And so the idea behind iTROM was, in fact, I shared these results we did in a study in Sweden, looking at the 69 registries that were available at the time and showed how these registries has really driven improvement in patient outcomes, increased the adoption of clinical guidelines or compliance to guidelines, et cetera. And Michael was really intrigued by that. And so the beauty that we discussed is that, you know, health systems are really different. You could easily say that, well, how can you even compare Sweden to the United States? You know, it's a socialized system and blah, blah, blah. But a patient who needs hip replacement is exactly has the same symptoms and same needs as somebody who does it in New York or in Calcutta, for that matter, because the disease is the same. We use the same diagnoses. You know, the patients have the same needs. The outcomes they ask for and need are the same. So what Michael and I discussed initially was, what if we could create global standards so that we don't only compare, you know, 69 hospitals in Sweden with the outcomes they have, but maybe 6,900 hospitals around the world. And so if there's a really innovative team in Calcutta who does outstanding hip replacements and does great physiotherapy, we could find them. And anywhere in the world, we could find really innovative clinicians and clinical teams who, who deliver excellent results. And we could use that as a basis for learning and improvement. And it would be much faster than waiting for you know, traditional clinical trials to be done which are much more expensive and take much longer time. So it'd be a way of really speeding up the improvement of guidelines and clinical practice. And in fact, there's a scientific approach to this, which the Swedish Myocardial Infarction Registry has done, where they have you know, 69 hospitals who care for patients with myocardial infarction. And they have tried an approach where they randomize patients in they used 29 hospitals in, in a particular project, randomized those patients into one treatment or another treatment in normal clinical practice. And they were able then to scientifically do scientifically valid tests of new treatments in normal clinical practice, which allowed them to do, do this much faster, much cheaper, and change clinical practice much faster. In fact, in this particular case, they dramatically could cut costs because there was a procedure which really didn't really help patients. So outcomes measurement becomes a vehicle to have a holistic view on how do we work together to achieve a goal, which is common to all the specialties and all the experts along the care chain. It allows you to generate scientific evidence for what works and what doesn't. And ICHOM 
when it was established 10 years ago, set out to try to make this a global movement where because diseases are the same all, all around the world, we can measure the same outcomes. And ICHOM has, over the past 10 years, brought together over a thousand clinical leaders, the highest expertise on outcomes measurement around the world uh, to discuss what should we measure for myocardial infarction? If somebody has anxiety disorder, what are the outcomes that these patients really want? And every one of those working groups that were put together included patients, uh, multiple patients. And often after these measures were proposed, there were big groups of patients who were asked to review them and say whether they agreed that these were the outcomes they would want for their particular disease. So these global standard sets of measures have been developed for 45 medical conditions now and are being rolled out worldwide. We know of somewhere around a thousand institutions that already have started using at least some of these measures to allow themselves to compare the results with those of others and therefore drive improvement and learning much faster than you would do uh, through other approaches. Yeah, I have a, a couple points I'd like to add to this whole discussion of registries and outcomes measurement. And let me come at it in a personal way. Unlike Stefan, I am not a doctor. My background is in journalism and in particularly business journalism. And when I was an editor many years ago at the Harvard Business Review, my beat was organizational innovation and organizational learning. And when I first got involved with Stefan writing about the experience of the registries in Sweden, you know, it struck me when we would talk, for example, to editors at journals, when they heard the word registry, they would think of a database, you know, some big database somewhere where people were collecting data about a particular condition. And the penny really dropped for me when I realized that these registries in Sweden and other Scandinavian countries in Australia, all over the world, they're not just databases. They are that, but they're really systems for continuous improvement. And one of the, the, the key points is good registries don't just collect data. They use the data to accelerate learning on the part of the professional communities with which they're associated. The other point I would I would make that I think is important is a lot of times when people in the U.S. healthcare industry hear about things like, oh, Sweden has 70 registries, it's sort of easy to be dismissive, to say, oh, well, that's great. Sweden, it's a small country, only 12 million people. They have a national health system. Our system is much more fragmented. U.S. doctors will never do this. And I think that's quite simply untrue. I mean, in fact, there are very good registries in the United States. In fact, one of the earliest registries we found is a registry created by the U.S. Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which is a registry for all the centers around the country that treat cystic fibrosis. And it's probably one of the most successful registries in the world. And with the same active use of the data for continuous improvement in its professional community. A major U.S. healthcare organization like Kaiser Permanente has many registries internally that it uses to improve its practice for its patients. And, you know, Kaiser Permanente 
serves as many patients as the entire national health system in Sweden. In the state of Michigan, there is a, a network, probably the most uh, widespread network of quality improvement initiatives linking all the hospitals in the state, funded in large part by Michigan, by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, in which doctors, very much like the registries in Sweden or elsewhere, come together, share their results, review their practice, identify best practices, and then propagate them across the hospital network. So this phenomenon is global, and it's also something you can find in the U.S. I mean, to be, to be sure, our health system is much more fragmented than in many countries, but uh, it can happen here. Well, this opportunity to organize care delivery around the patient, I mean, it has profound implications for how healthcare providers can really transform care and you know, it encourages this, you know, as you mentioned, this more comprehensive and holistic perspective on health and disease that could be replicated, you know, across the care continuum. And this holistic approach to care delivery is so different than this fragmented environment that characterizes contemporary healthcare, especially in the U.S. And it emphasizes primary care that's based on basic population health and disease prevention. It also requires hospitals and clinics to be organized into these integrated practice units that Michael Porter and Dr. Tom Lee, who was just on the podcast, uh, what they uh, envisioned in terms of giving a provider organization responsibility to deliver comprehensive care to patients with specific medical conditions or health needs through multidisciplinary teams. And in your book, you focus on how innovative provider organizations around the world are using these patient-focused and value-based approaches to organize care delivery. And you reference in one of your chapters three leading exemplars. You have Martini Clinic, which is a German provider organization that focuses on delivering superior health outcomes for patients with prostate cancer. There's Oak Street Health, which is a U.S. provider organization that's reinventing primary care for the low-income elderly. There's Kaiser Permanente, which you mentioned earlier, which is putting together all the pieces and value-based care delivery for its 12 million-plus members. So I wanted to ask you both if you could expound on this care delivery redesign premise where everything becomes organized around the patient. And when we look at these innovators and these exemplars like Martini Clinic and Oak Street and Kaiser Permanente, what can these legacy healthcare organizations out there that have these more traditional approaches to care delivery, what can they learn from them about how to transition to a more value-based model for care delivery? So I think it, it is the examples such as Martini Clinic, you know, are, are, outstanding and I think really inspiring. But it's also fair, and I've had this comment from several colleagues, that prostate cancer and concentrating prostate cancer to one center, you know, is one thing to do, but but a lot of the hospitals, you know, in the US and, 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 and around the world, they have a very heterogeneous you know, group of patients. And with the aging population, we have more and more patients who are old and what we call multimorbid, who have multiple conditions, may have you know, obesity, diabetes, congestive heart failure, and maybe asthma. Uh, and so how does that fit into the model of being a integrated practice unit where you focus on, on one, one condition? Because many patients have multiple conditions. So what I think is very important here is that, first of all, that we don't define 
value-based healthcare only around a diagnosis, but around population groups, subpopulations. Some subpopulations are defined by a disease, you know, people who have asthma, but some may be defined by, you know, being older, by having, you know, a given a specific set of diseases, say metabolic disorder, diabetes, obesity, and, and, and maybe heart disease. And for that group, you can define outcomes that are meaningful, and you can organize care around those patients with the right experts working together around those patients and set your clear outcome goals that everybody works, works towards. And for a legacy provider, as, as you said, Eric, uh, who has this broad range of patients, I think what you need to do is to recognize the, the, the number of groups that are there, find ways of grouping them and having accountability to organize care for those groups, bring together the right experts, and then set the goals for the institutions around the outcomes, as well as the use of resources. So it becomes a bit of turning the traditional organizational structure from being specialty-based to being patient group-based. But it's often not either or, because you also need to maintain you know, the expertise around orthopedics or you know labs or you know uh, gastroenterology etc so it is a matter of of managing that matrix of the patient group that brings together the experts needed for that patient group and then to supply those patient teams with the right experts some organizations such as cleveland clinic and the karolinska hospital you know went quite far in reorienting reorganizing around uh, specific patient groups and that change is quite can be quite dramatic and traumatic even because it is a big change for staff working in those organizations. But I think you can gradually move in that direction and increase the measurement of outcomes, defining that as you know, the definition of success in, in the institution. And by doing so, providing more autonomy to the clinical teams to organize differently and not only organize around the specialties, which leads to the fragmentation that you mentioned earlier. Because at the end of the day, with the enormous increase in knowledge, uh, medicine becomes more and more subspecialized. In the old days, you were either a surgeon or an internist. After that, you were either a, you weren't an internist, but you were probably an internist and a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist or a rheumatologist. Today, you're much more specialized than that. And so that level of fragmentation must be bridged by, by coordinating the different people along the care chain. That's why I think legacy institutions may find it challenging to organize around patient groups, that you need to start somewhere and then work your way through to find the way in which you can really be much more patient-centric and find organizational models, operating models that support that uh, way of thinking and that way of measuring success. Part of what we were trying to do with the examples you mentioned, Eric, was to give a sense of the variety of organizational models that are emerging. So, for example, Martini is a kind of classic integrated practice unit. They focus on prostate cancer. They're able to have volume and really drive improvements in practice through the number of, uh, of, of surgeries they do, the data they collect, et cetera. You know, Oak Street Health, totally different environment. It's really much more primary care based. And there the focus is not on a disease group. It's really a population segment. Elderly, 
relatively economically disadvantaged people who live often in areas that are very poorly served by the traditional health system. You know, and then finally, uh, Kaiser Permanente, they're a, you know, soup to nuts. They do everything. They're a major health system serving 12 million plus people in, I don't know, 12 states. So very different kinds of organizations. But when you look at them closely, there's some real commonalities. First of all, they focus on population segments. In some cases, like Martini, it's one population segment, one specific disease group. For uh, Oak Street, it's not so much disease-oriented. It's more a kind of demographic population segment. For Kaiser's, it's many different segments. They have a very team-based approach to care. They bring specialists together. They operate extremely collaboratively. They're very data-focused. They track health outcomes to a degree that you don't typically find in a typical healthcare organization. I mean, Martini is amazing. They are tracking prostate cancer survivors two, three, 10 years out after surgery to be able to track the ultimate results in terms of quality of life, survival, et cetera. And then they're using that data and learning from it to improve their performance. So too with Oak Street, so too with Kaiser Permanente. So even though they're very different in terms of their focus, the practices, the organizational practices and the organizational innovations have a kind of family resemblance. And that's what we were trying to do in giving this variety of examples to show the kind of underlying logic of this value-based approach to care. Maybe I can add uh, the Oak Street example I find you know, really interesting because they, you know, they have this population group that they're working with, multi multi-morbid, elderly in, in poor areas of the, the big cities. And because they measure themselves against outcomes, they're not necessarily measured against outcomes, you know, by the payer, because the payer uses metrics that are largely process metrics. But Oak Street Health has defined a series of outcome measures for this population that they you know, seek and aspire to improve. But as they do so, they really take a holistic perspective. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that outcomes measurement does is it forces multidisciplinary teams to collaborate, uh, to agree on, on common goals that they aspire to. But in the case of Oak Street, because of the population they have, to improve outcomes for that population, you know, in some cases, they bring food to people. Uh, the socioeconomics drive have, has enormous impact on health outcomes. So if you aspire to improve uh, outcomes for your population, you do take that holistic point of view. So during COVID, you know, they would drive out food uh, to the patients they were responsible for. They do a lot of preventative home visits, et cetera, to understand the particular circumstances of their individuals and how to help them improve their health. And the late CEO of Kaiser Permanente, I remember a call he gave at the World Economic Forum where he described how Kaiser Permanente, you know, in, in a part of Los Angeles where they, where they had a lot of patients and where patient outcomes were very poor, they found that a lot of the people were unemployed. Uh, and they also then figured out that there was actually no 
transportation between that part of Los Angeles and where the jobs were. So Kaiser Permanente started a bus line to help people in that community to be able to travel to work. And by doing so, enabling them to go to work and, and through that, contribute to better health for them. So I, I think that these, uh, these examples illustrate very much the holistic impact that focus on patient outcomes has. And I think for our societies, it is essential that we don't separate uh, you know, the various components that contribute to health too much. Because if we do, we will suboptimize each one of them. Well, gentlemen, we've got a very sophisticated audience for this podcast, and they're they're leading value-based care transformation in their respective organizations. And I know they really appreciate your deep insights on global healthcare as they look to meet the challenges of change. And for leaders of more traditional provider organizations, it's not really enough to simply manage an institution's existing model of care delivery anymore. Rather, they need to confront this change challenge head on. They need to champion the kind of behavior change and changes in clinical practice that value-based care delivery requires. And it's not an easy task in healthcare where medicine tends to be very conservative and risk-averse, while clinicians are also skeptical or cynical of change because they've seen so many other change initiatives in, org- in their organizations that are, that are really divorced from the actual tasks of care delivery. In your book... You explore in great depth how leaders should step up to meet this change challenge. And you share four examples of value-based change ranging from incremental to transformational. Santion Group and Erasmus University Medical Center, both in the Netherlands, were examples of incremental value-based change, whereas Sweden's Karolinska University Hospital and the U.S.'s Intermountain Healthcare were outlined as transformational value-based change. I'll let our listeners read the book to get all the details on each of these transformation exemplars, but I did want to mention one detail about the Intermountain example. I found it interesting that their ultimate goal of value-based healthcare is not to just change the individual organization, but to transform the entire health system as well. And that's definitely a big, hairy, audacious goal. Can you discuss the importance of visionary leadership in accelerating the the transition to value-based healthcare? We'd love for you to share any insights from these exemplars as well in order to provide our listeners with continued inspiration to meet the change challenge. It's so interesting. This theme of visionary leadership came up over and over again as we researched for the book. So for example, it's not a coincidence that Martini Clinic in Hamburg was founded by by Hartwig Huland, who was a leading German urologist and just an incredible, incredibly charismatic leader. You know, pretty much in every uh, sort of pioneering value-based healthcare organization that we looked at, there was at some point some very visionary leader who made change happen. Well, Hartwig was a was a leading urologist. In, in the early days, he did a postdoc in California. And coming back to Germany uh, after having done really well in the U.S., he had the idea of establishing the Martini Clinic. But one of the things he decided was he didn't want the hierarchical German model where the most senior professor would uh, completely dominate the institution and, and would 
uh, also have all the private patients to make a lot more money than the rest. Uh, he decided he wanted a flat organization. He wanted a team that worked together. And so when he established the Martini Clinic, I don't know how many they were from the very beginning. If they were, you know, five, six uh, colleagues who set it up. He was the leader of it, but he made the peers equal. And so they had a team leadership. They also had exactly the same salary. So when they had done better and had done more work and, and you know, revenue had grown, they had a bonus system, which they shared all together. In spite of being such a well-recognized internationally, uh, you know, thought leader and, and, you know, clinical scientist, he also established a team of truly loyal colleagues, the best he could find in the country, but also the ones with the right attitude. Uh, he defined separate expertise areas where, you know, they would, somebody was interested in molecular biology, that person would then be responsible for the team to build their knowledge there. Somebody else did, was, you know, very interested in, in uh, computers. So he built some of the registries early on, et cetera. So they truly built a multidisciplinary team with a shared goal and a very collective way of working together. And I find Hartwig Hulan one of the more inspiring clinical leaders I've met in my you know, entire career. Of course, there was somebody with tremendous weight scientifically, and yet the personality with a vision. And that combination allowed him to create something that you know everybody can be inspired by. But somebody also like Mark Harrison. I met Mark Harrison when he was working with uh, Cleveland Clinic and did some work together with him in my capacity as a BCG consultant. I found Mark to be a person with a very strong vision for healthcare, a deeply ethical and moral point of view on how healthcare should be organized, healthcare equity, et cetera. And in his role at Intermountain, he put a lot of that in practice. And he, he led some quite dramatic changes that we describe in the book, which were not popular you know, among some, but where his conviction that these were the right things to do for the patients and in the long run for the institution, you know, were behind his, his willingness to make that bet. And, and in the book, we talk about, you know, three kinds of leadership that are needed in healthcare. One is, you know, to set the strategy for your institution, whether you are a provider leader, as the two examples I shared, or if you are a leader of a pharma company or a medtech company that want to build a you know, a position in value-based healthcare. You need to define a strategy for your institution to say, how do we get that? What should our role be? How can we contribute to this? And how will this make us successful? In many cases, this is quite a bit of change. And so you need to be a change leader. You need to be able to motivate your team. You need to be able to keep the ship steady, you know, when it becomes rocky, the sea becomes rocky and take the organization through a period of what will inevitably be turbulent. But I think the third role that is very important in order for the system change that Bob and I have talked about today is to also take responsibility beyond your own institution. Hartwig Hulan engaged deeply in the early ITROM work. He was very convinced about creating global standards. So he led single-handedly the working group of establishing global standards for prostate cancer, something he wouldn't have to do. Uh, he did it because he wanted to contribute to the improvement of the system, to the improvement of global healthcare. And he's been a st staunch supporter of ITROM's work. 
In Mark's case, I know he, he engaged beyond the institution in healthcare questions in many ways, whether it was in the World Economic Forum and others. And other leaders, you know, for instance, Toby Cosgrove at the Cleveland Clinic also engaged, and he describes that beautifully in his book, also engaged in the health of, you know, the city of Cleveland, uh, much beyond the Cleveland Clinic in itself. So I think that uh, willingness to contribute to the system change beyond your institution is really important because value-based healthcare, as Bob pointed out earlier today, is not, not something that Cleveland Clinic can do in isolation. It needs to be something where the payers are aligned and where others in the system are also aligned. Only then will we have value-based healthcare at scale. We can still have the Cleveland Clinic, the Martini Clinic, and the Kaiser Permanente, but the vast majority of healthcare organizations will not move towards value-based healthcare if it requires too much of the leaders. So I think the examples of the leaders we've given have been exceptional individuals who have been able to achieve value-based healthcare within their institutions. But if we want it to be a broader movement, we need to engage in the system change and do that beyond the borders of our institution. And that you could say is an altruistic demand of leaders. Is that something your shareholders will appreciate or does it demand that you actually need to motivate also your shareholders that that duty is critical in order for the system to be more sustainable and for the institution's long-term success beyond the immediate next couple of years. So I think that is a quite exciting leadership role, but one that's not trivial. Some of the people we've talked about have engaged in that way because they felt a duty as leaders to do so. But it's only if we can have enough people engaging the broader system change where uh, the whole system will move in this necessary direction. Sorry, I want to add one more example to the list of leaders that we encountered doing the book, because it's someone who comes from sort of within the organization, not necessarily at the exact top of it. And that's Dr. Lynetta Cuppert at Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, which is one of the leading academic medical centers in Europe. Dr. Coppert is a breast cancer surgeon, and she runs a multidisciplinary team in a, in a kind of in a breast cancer center at Erasmus. And she was someone who led a sort of bottom-up initiative in developing what are the patient-reported health outcomes that we're going to track in our unit, and how are we going to integrate them into our clinical pathway? And she went on a sort of journey of discovery, working with her colleagues, working with the nurses, working with patients on the team that was defining the metrics. Once the metrics were defined, figuring out how do you integrate these metrics in the actual physician-patient conversation so that they really help inform decision-making, shared decision-making between physician and patient. She got very interested in, okay, as we collect these metrics, how can we do you know, first-rate academic research using the data to figure out what clinical practices lead to better outcomes for our patients? When we talked to her, she described how this had completely transformed how she practiced medicine, 
She became much more interactive with her patients, much more interested in the quality of life results of their treatment. And eventually she kind of went on to, to take a lot of this new expertise beyond the hospital. She was a member of the working group at ICHOM that created the ICHOM standard set for breast cancer. She got involved in spreading the, the measurements they came up with to other hospitals in the Netherlands, eventually becoming the head of the breast cancer registry in the Netherlands. And she's working with colleagues all over Europe to create a sort of standardized system for the collection of outcome metrics in her disease domain. So, you know, there's also a kind of leadership that can come from the bottom up within organizations that can end up having a big impact, not just on one organization, but on the system as a whole. Well, gentlemen, we certainly cannot overstate the importance of exceptional, visionary, transformational leadership. It's of paramount importance as we move health systems towards value-based care. But we also need the payment models to change. We have to pay for value instead of volume. And the fee-for-service model, as everyone knows, has perverse incentives that really reward specialist intensity, a lot of procedural utilization, a lack of uh, tracking, and, and certainly nowhere near where we need to go in terms of patient-centered outcomes measurement. There's been an extraordinary amount of experimentation over the last decade in health systems around the world that are evaluating value-based payment. And the permutations can get complicated when you come down to it, but there's basically three types of uh, value-based payment models. You have the pay-for-performance bonuses that are paid out when a, a predetermined performance goal is achieved. There's bundle payments, which are a model where health systems can implement to um, establish a comprehensive fee for a clearly defined episode of care. And then finally, capitation, which pays a predetermined fee to cover all the needs for a person in a given patient population. And in your book, you have a, a great amount of research on value-based payment, and you discuss everything from Medicare Advantage in the U.S. to experimentation with bundle payments and health systems around the world. And you also covered value-based payment in low-income countries and how to pay for value for drugs, devices, and medical supplies. And in all of these examples, value-based payment is just one piece of a mosaic of mutually reinforcing changes that serve value-based behaviors. And for transformational leaders to effectively deploy value-based payment, you make a, a very compelling case for how we need to link payment to outcomes measurement and extend the value-based payment to the full cycle of care. And we need to invest in risk adjustment and use data to raise awareness around quality and costs and build this environment of trust, and ultimately encourage a culture of continuous improvement. So I'd love for you both to provide some additional context on value-based payment and the action steps that payer and providers need to take to, to really accomplish an, an evolution and how we ultimately pay for care. And, and how do we stage this? I mean, is this a walk-before-you-run type of model? I, I'd love for you to maybe expound on this transition that's happening across the world as we look at how we pay for healthcare services. We say we should go from you know, fee-for-service, paying from volume to paying for value. I think it's very important to go a, a step deeper in saying, what does that mean? Because in the book, we're not arguing that you pay 
if you have good outcomes for a patient, you get X amount of money. And if the outcomes are poor, you're not paid. That would be the ultimate consequence of paying for value. Uh, we're arguing that uh, we need a more holistic model of payment where the payment covers uh, a, the full responsibility for the care of a particular patient or patient group, such as used, used the example earlier today, hip replacement. If you have a bundled payment for hip replacement, you're responsible for the radiology, the diagnostics, for the surgery and the follow-up, the, the post-operative care, uh, including physiotherapy. And at the end of the day, when measure, outcomes are measured, you know, they should be measured around surgery, but maybe then, you know, two years after to see whether the, the patient actually significantly improved. And if that was the case, you can get a premium. So you can get a payment for, you know, really good improvement. Uh, if there's no improvement, you don't get that uh, extra payment. But I think the point we're making in the book is that that extra payment for linked to outcomes should be limited in volume. It, it maybe it should be 5% of the total payment or something like that. Because if you make uh, a too large share of the payment based on outcomes, you'll see a lot of cherry picking. There's a risk of physicians who are very experienced to only take on simple cases and not take on the risky cases, et cetera. So there's a risk for gaming. So we believe that the value-based payment are holistic in their view, you take accountability for you know, all the components or, or most of the components in a particular care pathway, and that would be the bundle payment. Or in the case of capitation, that you have the responsibility for all the care for a particular population. And, and Medicare Advantage and the Oak Street Health uh, example we spoke about earlier would be illustrations of that. And where the clinicians in all of these cases, whether it's bundled payment or capitation, in all of these cases, there has to be outcomes reporting. Capitation without outcomes reporting easily ends up being a rationing model. You get uh, you know $1,000 uh, a year for a patient with diabetes. And the easiest thing is to close the door. You get $1,000, you have no costs. Uh, that, of course, is not what we want. So therefore, you have, have to have outcomes measurement and outcomes transparency as part of this system. Uh, only then uh, will the autonomy given to the clinical teams lead to innovation that drives better outcomes and lower costs. And in my home country, in, in Sweden, in Stockholm, they put together bundled payment models for both back surgery and for hip and knee replacements. And the results were outstanding. The cost became lower because of innovative ways of re reorganizing the care chain, but the outcomes were dramatically improved as well. Outcomes were 20, 25% better. Critical outcomes such as the ability for people to go back to work, infection rates, et cetera. But costs were 20% lower. So this will only happen if you measure and report outcomes. And if you give the clinicians the autonomy to organize the care chain in innovative ways and make their choices of procedures and procedural changes in ways they think will benefit outcomes and, and you know save money. So it's a model of holistic uh, accountability. Outcomes is part of the payment, but only a small part. And you give higher autonomy to the clinical teams to innovate 
and think of how they can improve the health of the patients. As opposed to fee-for-service, where often the payers will have defined clinical processes which they reimburse. If you don't follow that, you know, you won't get full payment. And so you're constrained often to a care pathway uh, described in a particular way, or you're measured for the activities and you have no accountability for the end result or the end res- or the result for, of what other people in the care chain do. So I think when we talk about going from volume to value, it's very important to carry this nuance in it because otherwise you can end up in the wrong way. For instance, thinking that you should be paying for outcomes only. And we don't believe that's the, the right way to go. Yeah, I, w- I would also add, you know, in the U.S. environment, value-based healthcare often gets reduced to simply, you know, risk-based contracting. And, and it's all about the payment model. And I think our view is that that is a, an oversimplification. Payment isn't a silver bullet. It has to be looked in the context of a whole set of changes that we've been discussing in organizational models, norms, ways of practicing. It's important to link to outcomes measurement because for the reasons Stefan described, I'll, I'll give you an example. Take Medicare Advantage in the United States. On the one hand, Medicare Advantage, we think, has been a real stimulus to value-based innovation at places like Oak Street Health, for example, or at Humana. By the same token, there are a lot of critics of Medicare Advantage. People talk about fraud. People talk about providers and payers gaming the system, you know, overcoding, all that stuff. We're never going to resolve those issues unless these finance models like Medicare Advantage are more closely connected to outcomes measurement and outcomes delivered. And and unfortunately, the sort of history of how we measure quality in healthcare has really been, you know, more about process metrics than it has been about outcomes metrics. There is there has been some movement to change that, but I, I think our bottom line is the only way for risk-based contracting, alternative payment models to work and be sustainable is if they're more closely linked to systematic outcomes measurements so that institutions can be assessed and evaluated on the outcomes they deliver to patients. Let me add to that and and, uh, pick up your, your comment, Bob, on where the direction of travel in the U.S., CMMI, the audience will know very well, did a large number of various pilots testing new payment models in the direction of value-based healthcare. And there's been a series of academic publications reviewing how successful they were. And the results were mixed. You know, Some seem to have been quite successful in improving both outcomes and reducing costs, whereas others not. And in a recent strategy document about a year and a half ago from CMMI, they declare that one of the things that need to happen is that the quality definition for those payment models need to go be much stronger linked to true outcomes that matter to patients and not necessarily just the process, waiting times or whether vaccination was given or not, but actually if patients got better. And so there has been some very interesting initiatives now to look at how such stronger focus on outcome measures can be included into payment models. And NQF under Dana Safran is working 
on a, a, a program called Innovation Alliance, where some of that work is being planned to, for two major patient groups to develop uh, outcome metrics that are meaningful for patients to then have them considered for payment models. And I think if that takes place and becomes scaled up across multiple disorders, then that will have enormous impact because then CMMI strategic intent to move quality measurement into outcomes that matter to patients will have enormous impact in line with the conversation we've had today, align cooperation along the care chain and secure that we do the things that really matter to patients and not things that matter more to other things. So I think that is a, it's early days, Bob, but I think it's a very interesting initiative. And CMMI has made some very clear statements that this is the direction they want to travel. So our conversation would somehow be insufficient if we didn't engage you both on the promise of big data and digital health to improve patient value. Despite nearly one third of all the data in the world today being created by the healthcare industry, and the total quantity of health-related data growing faster than any other industry, including financial services. We're still experiencing data silos and limited interoperability. If we're really to live in a future where the entire health system is aligned with improving outcomes, we need optimal business intelligence. And that doesn't just come from EHRs. We have to leverage the entire data universe. We not only have to build in new streams of clinical and non-clinical data, but we also have to take data from EHRs, which have around 80% of health information sitting there as unstructured notes. We also need the continued proliferation of digital technologies to automate the routine collection, sharing, and analysis of health outcomes data. Can you share your thoughts on the evolution of big data, interoperability, and digital health in the future of healthcare transformation? So I think there are a couple of things that are needed. Uh, and I agree with you that data is fragmented, uh, data is not structured, uh, notes uh, with, you know, where the standardization of what things mean is not there. Uh, so that's a huge challenge. Uh, and, and equally, because of healthcare's complexity that we've spoken about earlier today, information technology is essential for us to handle that complexity. So I think there are a couple of things that are needed. We need to be able to share data uh, much more. You said we should have all the information we can gather around an individual you know, would be really useful. But the issue with that is, of course, that we have enormous amount of breaches of patient data. And all this data is deeply personal. So there needs to be some real investments into data security. And here uh, we are in a, in a poor, poor place in, in most of, of healthcare. And we need to invest heavily behind this. And this is where we think that society needs to, public-private partnership need to go in and make significant investments. We talk about a moonshot in the, towards the end of the book. The second thing is need, that's needed is interoperability. You know, in spite of all the innovation in healthcare, we still can't share files across IT systems. And uh, a lot of work has been done on what's called interoperability, so the ability to connect computers with each other and share health data. But healthcare is behind most other industries. You know, in airlines, you can book tickets with any airline from, you know, an app. Uh, healthcare, you can't bring data together. So that's also an area where significant investments are needed. And finally, when it comes to the big impact health informatics or digital will have on healthcare, is once we're able to translate the experience, the learnings from every patient into decision support, when we can you know, from cases 
similar to me can draw implications for my treatment. And, and that will require artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, but those systems rely on defining what they're optimizing for. Machine learning gathers big data in order to find patterns which leads to a particular result. That result for machine learning in healthcare needs to be patient outcomes. What we're trying to optimize healthcare for is better public health, better health for the individual. And in order for digital systems to really have that impact, it is essential that we have standardized outcome measures and that they are used ubiquitously. If that can be done within nations, big nations, or across nations, mankind will be able to learn from experience and translate it into better care. But that requires safety of data, it requires interoperability, and it requires ubiquitous use of standardized outcome measures. And I think that is probably the most exciting implications of iChom's work globally, is that if iChom succeeds in establishing these measurements across nations, clinicians around the world can share data and from that learn how to treat patients better in real time. Yeah, in our in our book, we talk about creating digital learning platforms on a global scale in which standardized data, ways of sharing it, allow you to aggregate data, analyze it, identify best practices, and, and really, in a way, start turning variations in, in practice across the world into a resource that you can learn from. And just to give, you know, that's a very visionary notion of what the future could possibly bring. But, you know, it's happening in bits and pieces here and there. One of the case studies we give in the book is of an organization called CORAL, which stands for the Community in Oncology for Rapid Learning. This is 50 cancer institutions around the world that are sharing data, often on very rare cancers, for example, anal cancer, for which no one institution has enough cases to, to have st statistically significant data, but by pooling their data and standardizing across it, and then using AI to kind of find patterns, they're beginning to sort of create a global learning platform for improving clinical practice in the domain of cancer. So, you know, it's starting to happen. A lot of work needs to be done, but we think this is where the, the global healthcare sector is, is going to be going. Well, gentlemen, we've had an outstanding conversation today. Yeah, I think it's captured uh, in your book. You talk about this moonshot opportunity and value-based care transformation that's not unlike President John F. Kennedy's uh, decision to put the full weight of the government behind landing a man on the moon. And the, our work has only just begun. I mean, healthcare leaders will need to embrace strategic leadership, transformation, system level leadership and achieve these aims of value and the deficiencies of global health systems are a systemic problem and addressing them is going to require concerted collective action from these enlightened leaders. And as we wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to read the last paragraph of your book and it is as follows. The English poet John Donne famously wrote 
No man is an island. The same is true for the myriad of organizations in the global health sector. When it comes to ongoing value-based transformation of healthcare, we are all in it together. So I wanted to get your parting thoughts on the importance of, of leadership and transformation on a global level to really build not only this path to transformation, but to build this coalition of universal support around the world as we transform healthcare. So I, I mentioned earlier that the beauty of the patient-centric and outcomes-focused approach to healthcare is that humans suffer from the same conditions irrespective of you know where they live. Asthma is the same disease in Calcutta, New York, and Stockholm. And as a consequence, you know, the outcomes that matter in, in the vast majority of cases are also the same. Now, our healthcare systems are very different. You know, in some nations you have good, you know, primary care. In other places you have, as in the U.S., extraordinary care for advanced specialist care for cancer patients. You have different societies when it comes to whether people eat too much or exercise less or uh, et cetera, et cetera. And mankind, by looking at healthcare as, as a common cause, as a reason to collaborate, can learn from these differences we have in systems by using a uh, you know a, a, the same set of binoculars. By looking at outcomes, we'll find variation that we can learn from. And you know, in today's world where we see more and more conflict between different groupings, it, it may come across as naive that you know this global perspective is one that we're arguing for. But we do think that, you know, if there's something all humans can unite around is the desire of health and the desire of good health for our, our dear ones. Uh, and that's why we're we're hoping that, that the global approach, in spite of these divisive times we live in, can be uh, achieved in healthcare, uh, that the standards outcome measures uh, can be the, the way in which we can collaborate to learn from each other and not you know find that some are better than others and you know others are bad have bad performance but rather find innovators to celebrate uh, you know the learning process as something positive we're hoping that you know itrom is seeking to create these global communities and we gather over a thousand individuals from the last year, more than 40 nations every year to come together, share learnings and connect with each other to try to drive this improvement. But that's a small group. It should be much larger than that. But, but I, my vision is that uh, outcomes and the similarities of disease across nations uh, can allow us to collaborate and improve for all citizens across the world by learning from the differences. Yeah, it would it would be remiss, I think, not to reflect on the fact that the world has, in the last few years, has lived through this major traumatic world health event of COVID-19, where we've seen, at the same time, incredible breakdowns in international collaboration and, and enormous stress put on public health systems, for example. And yet at the, you know, a lot of mistakes made. I mean, you read the WHO report on the experience of the pandemic, 
you know, a lot of mistakes were made and we were really unprepared. But by the same token, there was an enormous amount of local innovation and, you know, international cooperation and in tracking the disease, in learning quickly from clinical practice, what works, what doesn't work, in creating vaccines in record time. So, you know, when the problem is urgent, the collaboration and the innovation is there and can be there. And, and in a way, our book is an effort to imagine a healthcare sector where people come together around improvement in all diseases in the way that, you know, really heroic clinicians and practitioners came together to, to, to fight the pandemic. Well, I, I feel so enlightened, gentlemen, from this conversation, but most importantly, I, I feel this sense of optimism, and I, I really appreciate the both of you for your continued research and thought leadership on value-based care transformation at a, at a global level, and, and, and really appreciate you spending time with us today and sharing your insights with our listeners on the Race to Value. Well, we're happy to do it, Eric, and, and honored to be in your podcast series. Thank you both very much. It's been a, a delightful conversation. Yeah, thank you as well. Very enjoyable. And I know our listeners are going to really appreciate your thoughtfulness and your your contributions and definitely look forward to a global solutioning that you envision. <laughs>